0: Hello, welcome to episode fifty-three of Late Night Linux, recorded on the twentieth of December, twenty eighteen. I'm Joe, and with me are Graham. Hello, and Will. Hello. Unfortunately, Failim is not with us. Uh, he's got some family shit to deal with, and he definitely didn't forget that we were recording a few days early. <laughs> he puts the fail in <laughs> He does put the fail in Phelan, Yes. So fuck you, Failim. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of not a normal episode. It's nearly Christmas. Recording early because it's our 2018 year in review. Think Charlie Brooker, but more Linux and less funny. So um, let's start with January then. And technically, this is kind of December 2017 stuff, but it, let's call it January. Meltdown and Spectre. Something that has really echoed throughout the whole of 2018,
1: hasn't it? It's certainly affected my idea of what computing is and what it will be going forward, actually, it's not just this 12 months, the fact that the, the, the huge performance impact it had, and then the mitigation of just removing the fix and accepted that we're going to have to live with it. Um, and the fact that we've got in, Intel management systems, we'll never know the insides of, um, I just think it's the way that the world's going to be from now on
2: yeah and then even linus torvalds himself said uh that he was removing those some of those mitigations from the kernel because of those performance impacts uh, i think we talked about this earlier in the year but we saw some graphs that showed aws workloads specific aws workloads so not you know generally across the board but for these specific workloads it was um it was having an impact of like 50 percent
1: um longer <laughs> which was just insane and um that's not viable Is this something we're just going to have to accept? I mean, there's going to be more things like this. I think it's a certainty. The more complex and the more black box like our CPUs become, the more these things will happen, I think. Well, maybe RISC-V will save us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, yeah. More
0: on that later. Has it affected the desktop much? Because I I don't see that in my day-to-day computing on Linux. It might help that I've upgraded to a pretty beefy desktop this year, but... Will, you must have been keeping a close eye on this.
2: Yeah, I think it's the specific workloads that were really affected. So general desktop use cases are probably going to see a 20% workload. And once you've got a few electron apps up and running, you know, it's not really going to make that much difference. So it's it's not too bad on the desktop. It obviously has has an impact, but desktops shouldn't be hooked up to the internet running these sorts of services uh, on them. So you're less vulnerable on the desktop anyway.
0: Well, no doubt we're going to see more of this. Although I suspect that it's going to be less impactful, uh, in kind of media-wise, isn't it? It was this big revelation, and now it's just going to be like, oh, well, there's another one. Well, yeah, yeah, we were kind of expecting it. So I don't think there's going to be as much of a song and dance made about it.
1: I know. Do you think now when we get, um, you know, use you name to get the kernel output, we'll go see a huge list of vulnerabilities that we're just going to be susceptible to? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Probably. Yeah. Well, that kind of dominated January, and January is quite quiet generally, so let's move on to February. And there was a fun one there, and that was that the Nintendo Switch could run Linux because of a hardware flaw. Was it in
1: the Tegra chip that they run? Yes, according to the story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've remembered correctly then. It it almost made me want to buy a Switch. Um, It's funny that at first we thought it was only going to be command line stuff or whatever and then someone got plasma running on it obviously and i th- saw recently someone getting ubuntu 1804 running on it so the switch is kind of a proper linux computer if you want it to be
1: i think the best thing about this story was that the gif that animate showed plasma running on the switch had a really nice piece of soundtrack music on an amiga right hmm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're only in february and you've already mentioned the Amiga. <laughs> <laughs> sorry it's the wrong
2: podcast yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Will, were you tempted to get a Switch, or have you got, I know you're kind of into your games, aren't you, so have you got one?
2: I haven't, I've resisted, Um, I've played on a few, but I've resisted so far, it's a nice toy, but um, I think perhaps I'm a bit too grown up for it, sorry Adam. (laughs) Fair enough,
0: well moving on to March then, and the Raspberry Pi 3B Plus was released, which wasn't a massive improvement over the Raspberry Pi 3, was it, but it was kind of enough to make a lot of people buy them i presume you've
2: bought at least one of these will yeah a few in fact uh running as a variety of services and servers and myth tv front ends and what have you uh, and actually i found the 3b plus to be quite a step up in performance um especially on the the ui front uh, it suddenly felt zippy it suddenly felt as if this was a a real computer if you like and that i could do proper desktop use cases i could edit documents browse the web uh, playback movies all of that suddenly felt um, just that little step up from previously and and it felt really smooth and like a real
1: a real computer i loved it
2: have you got one graham
1: yeah I, d- I did buy one um i'm getting really tight with how i use my i've got a few raspberry Pis, and i don't like to like finally place them in a project and leave them there indefinitely so it's silly really for a 35 dollar computer i should just plug it in and use it on something. But I've been, I have messed around with it and just not decided on what to finally use it for. Maybe it's the um, like the Steam Link client that's just been announced. Mm.
0: Yeah, that would be a good use case for it. I'm sitting here looking at a 3 that's just doing nothing. So I can't really justify it. But now that you've said that it is more performant, well, that makes me tempted because maybe there are more uses for it. Um, I'm a bit late to the party though, given that this was in March that it was released. <laughs>
2: I think a lot of the performance increase came from the faster networking throughput. Like, they got rid of that USB bottleneck that was everything going through the same, um, the same USB controller, and suddenly things felt a lot faster. Uh, so, yeah, I think, yeah, if you're doing anything on the network, um, then it will feel a lot faster. They think the, the clock speed only ticked up by a relatively small 200 megahertz, but, yeah, three times the speed of wired and wireless networking throughput, and that, I think, is what made the difference a relatively small 200 megahertz go on correct him graham how how many megahertz is
1: your amiga running oh god well it it was by by stock it was 25 but i replaced the crystal and got it going to 40 and that (laughs) but the the the, the amiga 500 was seven or 6.8 6.8 luxury (laughs) It
0: goes to show how things have changed, though, that just, oh, it's only an extra 200, oh, that's nothing. But when you're talking about these relatively low-powered devices, I think that does make a difference, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it does when you're using it as like a media streamer or it's, it's. there's usually some kind of CPU-bound process, whatever you're doing with Pi. It just means something will happen quicker. They're great for media front ends. So, you know, the the, for example, I do have a Raspberry Pi that I have plugged into a really good DAC for surround sound music. And it takes a while to cache and decode the surround sound codecs, and that kind of stuff will just happen quicker, even, you know, with a small percentage change in CPU performance.
0: And of course, later on in the year, we had the 3A+, Plus, I think that's what it was called, mm. which is the smaller version with fewer USB ports and stuff, rounding it off, and it's an exciting time now because we're going to get a completely new pie next year by the looks of things that may or may not be one of my predictions (laughs) in the next episode we'll have to see but it's the end of uh one raspberry pi era and potentially the start of a new exciting one so we'll have to keep an eye on that next year but speaking of the end of things also in march we found out that firefox os was officially dead basically when they shut down the app store for it
1: yeah, I've been able to live without it since then.
0: <laughs> it was the great hope for a little while, though, wasn't it? And this year, we almost had forgotten about it. But now that it's gone, I don't know, it, it means that we've only really got Sailfish and uh, and Ubiports' um, Ubuntu Touch left as alternative Linux-based mobile OSs. And you'd think that Mozilla would have the resources. I keep going on about it all the time, about how rich they are, but... You think they could have done something better with Firefox OS, but it seemed to just be doomed from the beginning, didn't it?
1: You make a really good point. Um, and I think we've all said this for a long time. Um, Mozilla gets and received, anyway, many, many tens of millions of dollars through its Google search revenue. Um, and they've always been rather conservative. Um, and, you know, towards the end of this year, I don't think it's on our hit list, but Firefox dropping down beneath 10% in terms of usage. And, Mozilla's got a struggle to remain relevant and having itself in this corner of freedom and providing alternatives to walled gardens, commercial proprietary walled gardens, actually is a a really strong position from which to build its um, future on. Um, And so, yeah, looking back on it now, I'm more disappointed now than I was at the time this was announced.
2: They seem to struggle from the beginning to really... Identify what sort of devices they wanted to be running on, and it ended up being sort of uh, feature phone plus, if you like, a, a step up from the bottom of the rung. Yeah, um, and that's just not appealing to people. Uh, it seems um, there was great hope that the uh, the 3 B, the other three billion people, may find this device as their first sort of computing personal computer device but um it just it never really took off in those markets the people that could afford it uh in the western markets weren't interested because it was seen as cheap and slow and kind of crappy so it's a it's a shame but um i think that that
1: was the wrong strategy this is something i've just thought of there's a place for a bit like f droid on android for firefox to create like an os um an app store on android that OK, you have to probably install it through an APK or something. But at the same time, the apps that are published through a Firefox Mozilla store on Android are free, or at least vetted independently of Google.
0: Wouldn't it be better for them to invest in FDroid, though? Because we've already got that and you know make that better rather than invent your own
1: thing. Yeah, I mean, but FDroid needs an awful lot of work to be usable. Um, And I was thinking, rather than the interface, which needs a lot of work in F-Droid, I was thinking more of the fact that Mozilla could put its weight behind signing and vetting applications and publicizing the use of its own portal for installing apps and less tracking, for example.
0: Yeah. Well, I would still like to see them work with F-Droid to do that, though, rather than invent their own thing. I don't know how receptive the F-Droid devs would be to that, but you would think that if you're an open source free software project, and then suddenly Mozilla comes along offering you loads of money and help, you'd jump at the chance, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, I guess historically Mozilla hasn't done that with, it's like to reinvent its own thing. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know enough about how FDroid is organized, but um, for a long time, it's it's been difficult to search and curate apps in FDroid and um, find similar applications and get updates. And it'd be nice to see that fixed. I would tend to disagree that Mozilla should
2: be investing in that sort of thing. I think that they've tried a few different things over the past year or so, two years. When they tried the IoT thing and the TV thing and the phone thing, and the, you know, none, none of those really went anywhere in the end. I think that they need to circle round and and just focus their all of their efforts on making Firefox the browser really compete on features, and that's where they can differentiate themselves in the market is to be a open source freedom respecting privacy respecting browser when everybody else or at least the majority of people are running google's own browser and um, that seems to be something that they could compete on
0: well we'll definitely come back to that later on when we get to december but of course firefox os does live on in one form and that's Kai OS. i think that's how you say it on those um rebranded nokia banana phones and it's exactly as you said it's feature phone plus and it seems that that is where it will end up um google's invested in it so you never know it might end up doing quite well yeah i'm not convinced but we'll see (laughs) well something i'm not convinced about as we move into april is ubuntu 18.04 you did a shit job will (laughs) (laughs) no it it has been a pretty solid release hasn't it of course on the desktop this is the first lts with gnome but that wasn't really the focus from canonical with it it seems to be, you know, obviously your team gets a bit of love, Will, but really it's more about the uh, cloud and container stuff, isn't it?
2: Yeah, well, that's where the money's coming from. And so that's where the investment's going. Uh, it's continuing to grow on the server side and now Kubernetes and OpenStack and all of those things really t- hockey sticking in, in an enormous way. So it's it's a big success story for Canonical. And, um, that's where the resources are going. Not to say that desktop is languishing. We still have our dedicated team. We still got the uh, kernel team, the security team, the foundation team all working on desktop. Everybody's still firmly behind it. So, uh, it's, yeah, generally a, a solid release. Everybody's done a good job and we're very pleased with it. And it's shipping now
0: on Dell hardware, isn't it? They were shipping sixteen oh four for a while, for a long while, but now they finally got round to the eighteen oh four update. Presumably you got to work with them on that then.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's not it wasn't too big a job. Um things haven't changed that much in uh, in eighteen oh four compared to sixteen oh four. But yes, it is an entirely new desktop um desktop environment. But yeah, it was it was pretty straightforward. But yeah, these They take time to go through QA. They take time to get all the hardware working. And then you've got to go into the factory process where the machine is manufactured and an Ubuntu gold image gets written onto those disks. And that is something that, you know, once it's left the factory, you can't change it um, perhaps ever. So yeah, there's no guarantee that these things are going to be hooked up to the internet. So you really have to be very, very certain that everything is as it should be. And that takes time.
0: I know you've been forced to run Ubuntu at least a little bit. Uh, Graham, uh, as a result of your job tearing you away from Arch. Presumably you have had some experience of 18.04 at this point.
1: Oh God, I, I mean, honestly, I, run, I must run four or five different VMs of Ubuntu every single day. I'm always I'm pulling them up and down. Yeah, it's been, yeah, obviously I'm biased, but it's worked wonderfully. It's been great.
0: Yeah, well, certainly Ubuntu 18.04 has worked fine for me. I haven't really tested much of the the main desktop one, um, but I found it to be, as a base, more solid than 1604, I think, so far. And 1604 was pretty solid as well. Obviously, I don't bother with anything other than LTSs, but um, yeah, I'd so say all in all, um, it, it's a very solid foundation. We found out later in the year that it's going to be supported for 10 years. We still don't know, do we? Will, you know this, but you can't say, or you couldn't say a couple of weeks ago,
2: um it, it is going to be paid for surely that extra five years i don't think the official announcement's out yet but uh, i'm sure it will be soon perhaps just in time for christmas
0: fair enough tight-lipped as ever presumably if it's not around christmas we'll uh hear in the new year but if it's not paid for those extra five years then uh i'm a dutchman <laughs> okay this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. go to do.co slash lnl that's for late night linux and you can get $100 credit with 60 days to use it. DigitalOcean offer VMs, or droplets as they call them, in data centers all around the world with super-fast networking and super-fast SSDs. And they offer various distros, including Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, and CentOS, and even FreeBSD. And you can either start with a basic installation of one of those distros and then build it up however you want, or you can use their one-click apps like basic lamp and lamp stacks, WordPress, Discourse, or GitLab. They've got droplets starting from as little as $5 a month, but they scale all the way up to huge amounts of RAM, huge numbers of CPUs, and loads and loads of storage. But you can also have a CPU-optimized droplet if you need more power than you do RAM or storage, and you can also add as much storage as you need using either block storage or object storage and they've recently rolled out DigitalOcean Kubernetes using the latest version of Kubernetes, and it integrates with the existing DigitalOcean products like the block storage and load balancers, and it even integrates with the DigitalOcean API. So what you've got here is access to Linux boxes all around the world and complete root access. So you can just do anything you want. If you can think of something to do with Linux, you can do it with DigitalOcean. So go to do.co/lnl and get your $100 credit. That's to.co slash LNL. Moving on to May then, and it really was the death of 32-bit this year, where lots of Ubuntu flavors decided to drop the 32-bit images after that LTS had come out, saying, okay, that LTS, you've got that, but no more. And then again recently, I think there's only Lubuntu still left to officially announce it, but it's pretty much looking like 1904. There won't be any 32-bit images, and I don't know. Do we really care that much about it?
1: I was going to mention this before. There's a, the people who are running 32-bit really care about it, even if they're a small percentage. Um, I, I remember um, back when I was involved with magazines, we we suggested dropping 32-bit images on the on the cover discs, and even though this was some time ago, the kind of the response that we had. For negative, you know, more emails than anything, you know, even letters saying you must not drop 32-bit. So I think it's a very vocal minority, which is why it's a story. But for the rest of us, I don't know the last time I installed a 32-bit ISO other than on a Raspberry Pi.
2: Yeah, for us, it doubles the QA that we have to do. Um, It increases the amount of work that's needed um, to to build the images and to to get them out the door as well. It's a, a big investment for a very, very small minority Um, of people, like 2% or thereabouts. Um, So I'm afraid that the economies of scale come to play here, and it just means that 32-bit isn't viable, not only for Ubuntu, but for all the flavors as well. But what about the archive? The 32-bit archive still exists, and you can still build up any version
0: of any flavor of Ubuntu from a net install. I did that the other day just to test it. But the question is, when is 32-bit going to be dropped from the archive and when are we just going to go completely 64-bit only with ubuntu and other distros it it feels like that's not too far off at this point
2: yeah i i don't know i haven't had or haven't seen any conversations about that specifically but i imagine that they have been happening um yeah if it was up to me then i think the time is very soon going to be upon us where 32-bit is not viable anymore so you would like to
0: see it dropped before the next LTS
2: then. Uh yes, I think that would be sensible. Yeah, before the next LTS.
0: What about VMs and um you know containers and stuff like that, isn't there an
2: argument for them to be 32 bit still? Uh, I guess so. I mean, yeah, you know, like memory overhead and um, and that kind of thing probably. But again, I think that the economies come into play here and you may save yourself a bit. I, I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are like, but I don't imagine that it's such a big saving that it would make it worthwhile. I don't know,
1: especially when they're on a sixty four bit host. Yeah. Oh well, I suppose uh, we'll we'll see over the next year or so. But I think well, it's an opportunity if somebody wants like a a great following and a good niche distro. You know, mm-hmm. they can they can build up the packages themselves.
0: Yeah, I suppose you could call it. Uh, I don't know, thirty two Ubuntu. <laughs> All right, well, also in May was the first confirmation that we had that Linux apps were going to be available on Chrome OS. There'd been a lot of rumors and there'd been a lot of stories about it, but we finally learned what was going on with this. And it's still not um, kind of mainstream yet. Here we are, you know, six, seven months later, and it's still a little bit um, experimental, but it does mark a major shift in Google's strategy with Chrome OS, whereas before it was just the web browser, it was just totally locked down, it was just the Google web apps that you could use. And then they started talking about Android apps and now Linux apps. It's becoming a fully-fledged operating system, which means that I suppose you've almost got proper desktop Linux at that point.
2: Yeah, it's certainly gonna be the popular option there. I think even Linus has said that yeah the year of the linux desktop is going to be based around chromebooks um personally i'm not i'm not that excited about them um it it's a nice niche but i don't really see it as a a, a mainstream thing but i suspect i'll be wrong
1: on that I mean, apart from the cost, the hardware is really nice. And as we as we discussed, in me on a previous episode, really powerful, far too powerful for just running a browser and accessing Gmail. And it would be nice to be able to install a few other things alongside.
0: Yeah, having proper Debian apps on it would make it actually useful to me and would make me possibly consider it. But then I'd just prefer to have a Ubuntu, really, because then I can have mm, yeah. all of it plus Chrome very easily. So it doesn't hold that much appeal to me. And it's supposedly targeting developers, but I'm not that convinced that developers would want that. It it seems to me that the kind of market that Chromebooks are for is, you know, people like my mother-in-law, who's got one and uses it happily. Uh, You know, she doesn't really need anything other than a few web apps. Whereas someone who needs to do developer-type stuff or sysadmin-type stuff, surely they're just going to run proper Linux. So it, it seems a confused strategy, but who am I to disagree with Google strategy, unless it is Google Plus, of course, <laughs> which we know is a fucking disaster. So uh, I don't know, I might be wrong on this, but it's, I, I kind of go back and forth on it. Sometimes I feel like it's a really good strategy. And then other times I think just stick to what you're good at. And that is being a rock solid Linux base that works
2: perfectly and does one thing really well, and that is browsing the web. Yeah, I think that there might be some pressure from the whole privacy aspect as well. Like, do you 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 have to have a Google account to sign into this thing? So, are people going to be put off by that as well? Um, and I'm with you. I, I think that there will be a, a significant number of people who do adopt this as their primary development device, but I still think there is going to be more people who just want a proper Linux desktop. But we'll see.
0: Yeah, or a Mac. Um, Well, a bit of a fuck you to Huawei, who locked down its bootloaders this year, also in May. And um, it used to be that you could get codes to unlock the bootloader and then flash your custom ROMs and stuff, but um, not anymore. So I won't be buying a Huawei phone anytime soon.
1: Yeah, it's sad to see uh, bootloaders being locked, but I can also understand from their perspective, um, you know, We don't know how many kind of maintenance calls they get about people messing up their phones.
0: Yeah, but, you know, they make it hard enough or they used to make it hard enough that you would sort of have to know what you're doing. But I suppose those people could then phone them up or, or, you know, open tickets and stuff saying, I don't know what's wrong with my phone, even though they were the ones who fucked it. So I can understand that. But at the same time, it means I'm definitely not going to be buying a Huawei phone.
1: Yeah, but the percentage of people buying those phones for that particular feature must be tiny and they must know that. And, you know, none of the other main manufacturers do the same thing anymore.
0: Mm. Well, I don't know. I suppose the Pixel phones are pretty easy to unlock, aren't they? And Samsung ones are fairly easy generally. There's just one tool that's in the repo. I've forgotten its name now, but I've unlocked one before and that was very easy. So I, I just think, you know, make it difficult, difficult enough that you have to know what you're doing, but just make it possible. Come on but what do I know? (laughs) Well, there was one story in June that almost managed to dominate the entire year until it was usurped a little bit later
2: on, and that was that Microsoft announced they were buying GitHub. Yeah, so when all this kicked off and everybody said that they were deserting GitHub uh, and there was a great uproar, um, there was a a great exodus to GitLab, um, and people have been very happy there, but by and large, GitHub continued to be the place that everybody knows and everybody wants to host their projects so yeah i don't think much has changed um i think people are still happy with the service they're providing surely everyone's using launchpad aren't they (laughs) (laughs) that's harsh
1: I suppose that was another good side effect to the story, is that um, GitLab was forced, well, maybe not forced, but they coincidentally moved away from Azure like a couple of months later.
0: Yeah, that was funny when it turned out that they were on Azure in the first place. Yeah. Uh, I don't think many people knew about that, I didn't. And that was, yeah, very funny.
1: I'm still kind of open-minded about it. And I think Nat Friedman's done a pretty good job, um, at least of being open about what's going on and what's been changing. And uh, the changes have been mostly positive. but yeah, early days. Onto a bit of admin then. And
0: first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It is very much appreciated. And remember, you can get the ad-free feed if you uh, support us on Patreon to the tune of $5 or more. If you want to find out about that, go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash contact. And another quick plug for FosTalk Live... 2019, which will happen on the 8th of June in King's Cross in London at the Harrison, you can go to fosstalk.com to find out about that. It should be good. It's going to be us minus failing. So us, um, and Linux lads and, uh, Ubuntu podcast. And also the mashup will happen again, probably with Stuart and Dave and Marius and I don't know if you're going to do. I should have probably asked you this off air, but um, it's only Ben is available. Is he actually going to come? And are you going to do anything? I
1: haven't. He he was going to come when I mentioned it to him. Um, We haven't planned to do anything other than maybe have a few drinks at the bar. Yeah, which is what we traditionally do while everyone else is doing their (laughs) podcast.
0: Yeah, exactly. You fucking never watch any of the others, you bastards. But um, you've usually got the excuse that you're planning your show because you only (laughs) ever plan it like five minutes before. But. yeah, we'll have to see exactly what's going to happen, but it's going to be a good night anyway. It's, it has been for the last few years. Um, so there are tickets available for it, although quite a lot of them have gone already. Um, they It's free. F- the the venue is free, basically. Um, but if you want to support the event, you can buy a ticket for as much as you want, or there's plenty of free tickets as well. Um, so yeah, just go to fosstalk.com and you'll see it there on the front page. So on to July then, and the news that I was talking about that overshadowed everything, and that is that Sousa was acquired. Uh, oh, no, hang on. Maybe there was another acquisition <laughs> that was a bit more uh, important than this one. But um, Sousa is the, the company that just keeps getting sort of passed around like a hat, doesn't it? Um, people just keep buying it. This time it was an investment firm called EQT. And at the time, we thought it was a lot of money, didn't we? Two and a half billion dollars. Mm but that turned out to be, well, spoiler, not very much (laughs) compared to some other companies. I I don't know, Sousa just doesn't seem that relevant. I know we are a bit Ubuntu heavy on this podcast, but, uh, you know, I I do think that Red Hat and Fedora is very important and very interesting, but I just, I find it hard to get excited about Sousa. It's, It's almost like well, like, if you think about Fedora, what they've got is RHEL, which is really fucking boring, but then they've got Fedora, which is quite exciting. It's very cutting-edge. Um, they're doing stuff um, with uh, a, a Fedora Atomic and even the Atomic Workstation, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, what do they call it? Silver Blue. And, you know, they're really innovating there. Whether or not it's for you is a different matter, whereas SUSE, even... They're, I, I don't know, I, I get loose track of their various versions or whatever, but I just find it really hard to get excited about it, even when they get bought for two and
1: a half billion. Sounds a bit like a national stereotype. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, you know, I think for them to be worth this much and for someone to pay for it, this much for it, they, they're they doing good work and they're ingrained in lots of, they are ingrained in lots of Germany Germany's mm. businesses and companies and have been for a very long time. They've got decades of experience and strong and stable. You know, not like the government with Ed Miliband. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, don't talk to me about that. You're depressing me. Uh, I do this to forget about the terrible state of politics in this country. But yeah, I suppose you're right. that it's Boring is good in enterprise. You just want it to work and not be exciting necessarily you just want to get your work done and not have to worry about maintaining it all the time
2: there's been moves in recent years to try and reinvigorate the OpenSUSE community and make it a bit more uh, exciting and relevant and and they've done some good work there but i think ultimately it has established itself as being the strong and stable um, conservative option with a small c, uh, and, uh, then that's what stuck. And, um, people just now see it as the, the kind of least risk option. And, um, that's not very exciting to to people who are developing, you know, cutting edge applications on IoT and uh, robots and self-driving cars and all that kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it has its place. It has a strong income stream, especially in the SAP um, side of things. But uh, from a, you know, rock and roll perspective, perhaps not so much. Need some
0: more snaps and stuff tonight, then it'll be very exciting. Yes. Um, all right. Well, the second or third biggest news story i think this year was that um steam play came from valve um which means that you can run shitloads of windows games on linux now i know that you are into your gaming will uh because i gave you the game that came (laughs) with my cpu (laughs) and you were the only one who wanted it uh it was some killing people game that doesn't appeal to me um have you taken advantage of this then
2: yeah, on a few games. Um, in fact, just yesterday I installed The Witcher 3, which is a, a not only a very, very good game, but works very, very well on Ubuntu, uh, or on Linux generally, I imagine. Um, so yeah, it's, it's extraordinary that you could just take these previously you know, unavailable games. If you were going to stick to your open source free software credentials and not have a dual boot with Windows on it, you just couldn't ever experience these games. And now suddenly there's, well, I don't know now. I'm going to say thousands. I think it is thousands of games which which just work perfectly. It's quite incredible.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, for how many years has the lack of games been like cited as the biggest reason for having a Windows partition on your Linux PC? And mm. uh, this is like it was already pretty good from SteamOS days, but you know that was kind of waning a little bit in ambition, and uh, this has just kickstarted it again.
0: Yeah, all we need now is Adobe stuff, and then there'll be no reason to use Windows at all, eh? And I hear there's rumblings afoot on that front. So uh, we'll have to see next year. That could be a prediction, maybe. Mm. But we'll have to see. Um, well, moving on into September then. And the first inkling that we had that there was stuff going on with the kernel development community was when Linus Torvalds had arranged his holiday and accidentally um, clashed with the kernel maintainers summit. And so he wasn't going to be able to go. And then they moved it from Canada to Edinburgh in Scotland. And that I thought was a little bit weird, but just everyone kind of thought it was funny. But then later on in September, we had this code of conduct situation where Linus stepped down for a time and um, this new code of conduct came out and everyone was up in arms, including me to some extent. I was a little bit reactionary, I think is the word, um, uh, especially given who had written code of conduct and some of the other stuff that she had done um specifically about the um you know meritocracy stuff but i think it was a bit of a storm in a teacup i remember at the time um you guys were over in um brussels weren't you i think and you just like no one in canonical really gave a shit about it because it was just such standard practice to have a code of conduct
1: for you guys it was difficult to know what was really happening in the, that situation i i don't know now even
2: Yep. So he's back in charge now, though. So I think things have uh, have been put to bed. Everything's been been taken care of. I'm, I'm not aware of any lingering issues that um, that that people have got, you know, access to grind or personal problems with Linus himself. I think all of that has been neatly tidied up. So I think it's full steam ahead now. Yeah, I think a lot of people were
0: worried, and some people are still complaining about social justice worries and all that. But I think ultimately, nothing has changed. In terms of the quality of the code certainly not yet and i'd be very surprised if ultimately we see any difference although i have seen people predicting that um linus will step down this year for good and he'll leave and then it'll just be greg in charge so who knows but somehow i don't think so no me neither okay this episode is sponsored by cdn77 go to cdn77.com And they are a UK-based CDN provider with a standalone live streaming platform providing end-to-end video solutions. They sponsor loads of great projects like CentOS, KDE, Fedora, Gentoo, and Funtu. And one of their standout clients is the European Space Agency, who use CDN77 to deliver Hubble images all around the world. And this CDN is built from over 500 servers all running Debian, and most of them are physical servers, only a few of them are VMs. Everything is developed in-house by CDN77, they make their own DDoS protection and through the optimizations that they've done, they can push 80 gigabits per second of live streaming through just one machine. They've got 30 points of presence in North America, South America, Europe, Asia and Australia with daily peaks regularly exceeding 4 terabits per second. They're really big on innovation as well, they were the first CDN to implement features like HTTP2 and Broccoli compression. But most importantly, it's really easy to use. I hosted an episode of the Joe Rest podcast on there and it was really easy to put the file on there and link to it. And I've had no complaints about the speed from people downloading it all over the world. They've recently launched some new monthly plans with the best value on the market from $9.99 per terabytes as a global flat rate. And they've also got a pay-as-you-go option with no commitments and full transparency. They've got a 14-day trial with no credit card needed, so go to cdn77.com and sign up there. And once you've done your free trial and you're ready to go for the paid option, then mention Late Night Linux to the sales or tech support team and you get an extra first payment bonus. So, for example, if you topped up $1,000, you'd get an extra 400 on top of that. So go to cdn77.com, sign up, and start delivering new content well, October then, and jokes aside, definitely the biggest story of the year, and that is that IBM are going to buy Red Hat for $34 billion. Like, what the fuck? How can a Linux company be worth that much? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's about 10 times revenue, isn't it, I suppose, and that's not unheard of. And it just goes to show how much of a huge company Red Hat are that really there were very few people who were in a position to be able to buy them and IBM was one of them
1: i've come kind of conflicting thoughts about it I, obviously red hat were looking to be bought and probably been in talks this is total conjecture for quite some time um so i i wonder what it means in terms of their future business strategy whether this is going to mean a pivot in in the way that they they do business and that's that's the biggest thing that we wondered about at the time and it's still too early to say but that's likely to have the biggest kind of influence or ramifications for us as ordinary linux users
0: well hybrid cloud and hybrid cloud and hybrid cloud (laughs) and hybrid cloud that was the message that i took from it that's what they want to push and you know ibm can make that happen for them they can really Use the the influence and money that they've got to grow Red Hat into that particular space that they want to do hybrid cloud, whatever that actually
1: means. Well, exactly, isn't that isn't that just kind of IBM saying jumping up and down, saying we're here, we're here, cloud, cloud, we're here. Yeah, well, cloud isn't enough; you have to tack yeah. something onto it, and
0: that's why they've gone for hybrid. Um, although, when you really break down what that means, it's you know a, a mixture of on premises and various cloud providers so that all your eggs aren't in one basket, which is actually quite a sensible approach, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I think Canonical does a great job in this, but the cloud, ever since it it first became kind of news, I don't know, 10 years ago, is incredibly difficult to predict which way it's gonna go. Um, so many companies have got it wrong. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, it's nebulous. It's like the weather. Um,
0: Hang on, you're saying that cloud is nebulous. <laughs> I just got that. <laughs>
1: but, um, no, but I mean, I do think that we at Canonical do a great job, but it's it's so difficult to predict how it's going to go, how things are going to change from one 12 months to the next. And that's what makes me kind of sceptical about IBM jumping jumping up and down and proclaiming hybrid cloud to be the thing. I don't know. You can shout all you want to. It doesn't mean it's going to be make the difference.
0: Well, Graeme, you said that they had been for sale for a while. Well... They were pretty fucking quiet about it, weren't they?
1: Well, I didn't. I Yeah, I have no idea. But I'm just assuming that this doesn't happen overnight.
0: Yeah, well, of course. A huge deal like that cannot happen overnight. Um, and so that begs the question of Canonical. I mean, everyone talks about Microsoft buying them. And, you know, Shuttleworth is adamant that he's going to do this IPO business. Um, and, you know, supposedly one of the rules of business is you don't say that you're for sale. You just do these backroom deals and then announce it once it's all formalized and final. And so it, it makes you wonder if Red Hat's worth that much, is Canonical worth anything near that? Um
1: You're expecting an objective answer from us soon. <laughs> <you. laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, of course I'm not going to but so if you're looking at um SUSE, two and a half billion there and thirty odd billion for IBM, I mean it's it's gotta be several hundred million thousand,
1: for, thousand billion, I would say.
0: Mm. I agree. <laughs> no, I was going to say 100 million for Canonical. You know, there, there is presumably a lot of value there, especially now that Shotworth has pulled his finger out and stopped losing money left, right, and centre, having fired like half of your colleagues uh, or, you know, let them go, or whatever. And, you know, he, he has been shaping up for this IPO, but it's, I, I, I know this is an awkward. Uh, it, it would be a conversation if you two could or would fucking say a word, but it's an awkward monologue <laughs> from me now, because I know you can't. So, you know, but just the way I see it is, I, I just don't believe that he's gonna go for this IPO. I don't believe that, that for a second that that was in his mind. I think it's far easier to just sell it than piss around, you know, having to deal with shareholders and all that bollocks. But what do I know? I've said that before in this episode and obviously I'm clueless, but, uh, we'll see. But as for Red Hat, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference for them. I said it at the time, I just think that, you know, IBM have acquired them because they make a shitload of money. And, you know, IBM will use their resources to further that mission and make a shitload more money. And that money will go, well, most of the money goes into developing open source code from which we all at least can benefit you know, we'll benefit from things like System D and Pulse Audio and whatnot. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that it's all going into open source, and and it's got to be a good thing. I I know that some of the people who work for Red Hat are not very happy about it, and I can see why, but I think ultimately, for the rest of us, it's going to be good.
2: Yeah, and I don't think people should worry too much. IBM have got a long history of investing in open source and producing their own open source products, um, obviously Red Hat do. So I think that um, the fears about suddenly them closing up everything and keeping it all internally, I think are unfounded. And yeah, I, th- I think things will generally continue as they have been, and we should, we should continue to benefit from their work.
0: Yeah. Well, let's move on into November then. And the Librem 5 slips again is the headline here. And that was that the dev kits were supposed to be shipping and they've slipped. Well, this week they started actually shipping and they've started talking about April as a date to ship the final product. I'm quite sceptical about that.
1: You've said that with every single Ibram piece of news all year.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, listeners may remember that back on Valentine's Day this year, I spoke to Todd Weaver, the CEO of Purism about this whole thing and made a hot date with him for Valentine's Day 2019 to see what's going on with the Lieberman 5. Has it shipped? Because it was supposed to ship in January. Now it's looking like April, or they're saying April. But as as usual, skeptical. I I always say the same shit, don't I? That I think it's going to be terrible. I want it to be great. I want them to ship it as soon as possible, but I think it's going to keep slipping. When are you going to get on board? You're a bit of a
1: saboteur, really.
0: When they... uh, announce that they're going to run xfc on it (laughs) or even if they were more inclined to do the plasma thing rather than trying to roll their own gnome based pure os which i think that's just doomed really i mean the kind of machine you need to run gnome on you know you try running that on a phone i mean it it, gnome is actually very touch friendly to be fair and probably far more so than KDE, but then with plasma mobile, that's pretty touch friendly. I just, I still maintain that they should have focused on plasma mobile, but it just doesn't fit in with the the whole mission of what they're trying to do with convergence across their laptops, as well as the phones. And he is a visionary. There's no doubt. And he fancies himself. As Well, maybe it's not fair to say fans himself as like a Steve Jobs or whatever, but he is a very good communicator, he's very, very persuasive and he clearly cares about this stuff. So I do really hope that it goes well for them and that this time next year we're talking about what a great success it was. But um, there's always a but, isn't there? I don't even need
1: to say it. I think if they get the phones out, it'll be enough of a success because, you know, it's very difficult with the first revision of something. Um you know, if they keep to half of their promises, then it will be good enough. And hopefully, you know, the second one will nail it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you only have to look at the first iPhone or Android phone, and they were fucking terrible, so oh, yeah, it's a fairly low
1: bar. Yeah, they, although they were better than Windows Mobile. <laughs> mm, true, true.
0: Um, all right, well, moving on into December and stuff that's happened since we last spoke, uh, the biggest story is that Microsoft Edge... Is going to move to uh, Blink base, so kind of Chromium base instead of Edge uh, HTML. So it's kind of going to be almost open source with their proprietary bullshit on top, which that ostensibly sounds good, but Mozilla are not very impressed, are they, with this whole situation because now almost every browser is going to be based on Blink and. Poor old Mozilla, uh, rocking Gecko, and it means that websites are just going to stop working in Firefox, probably.
1: Yeah, although I can understand the decision from Microsoft' perspective. Um, it's I'd probably make the same if I was in the same. I mean, I, I'm disappointed too. For Mozilla's sake, and the web would be, you know, a little bit more federated had they chosen Mozilla, but that's not what Microsoft's about.
0: Yeah, they're about making money. And if it makes more financial sense to base on Chromium, then of course they're going to do it.
2: Yeah, it seemed like such a weird thing to do. Like, like Edge was not the problem. Of all the problems that Microsoft have on the desktop, mm-hmm. Edge was not it. And actually, it was shaping up to be a pretty good, fast browser um albeit with with limited mind share, but it was still a a decent piece of engineering and to see that they they've thrown all that away presumably because it's cheaper to base on chromium seems um like a bit of a loss for the web because it is a bit becoming a monoculture and and that's not good for anybody.
0: What do we make of this intern who supposedly worked on edge saying that oh, Google deliberately crippled it, they've been adding empty divs to YouTube to make it not run as fast. um, That just sounds a bit bullshit to me. I I think that if Google services run worse in other browsers, I don't think that's the Google engineers deliberately doing that. That's them not giving a shit about the other browsers Mm. and making it work really well with Chrome. And if that happens to break stuff in other browsers, then why do they care?
1: Yeah. No, I completely agree with you.
0: It's just a little bit tinfoil hat, isn't it, to start saying that they are deliberately driving their competitors out. Like they don't need to. They don't need to. Chrome is ubiquitous now, everybody's using it. So, why would they need to squeeze out the competition? And that's really the crux of this that it's, it's just cheaper for Microsoft to do it. And it just makes more sense than, you know, if, why try and fight it? It's like a tide. Give into it. <laughs>
1: It's uh, it's it's quite interesting in the time long term history of these projects because I think like early in the history of HTML, Mozilla Mozilla's web rendering engine was actually a choice and the reasoning behind Kate Lars Knoll working on HTML and effectively creating an independent rendering there and it's kind. of It's often forgotten about that KHTML obviously became WebKit and then Blink with Google. It's a funny kind of circular system, but also huge props to Lars and the KD team and those early developments. Mm. Amazing project, really.
0: Um, All right, well, let's end with what can only be described as excellent news, and that is that MIPS is going to be open-sourced, at least to some extent. And so now we're going to have RISC-V and MIPS fighting it out for the kind of low end embedded cpu space both um royalty free and open source
2: it will be really interesting to see if anybody changes from using mips to using risc-v and and vice versa a lot of the sort of consumer lower grade uh, routers and and dsl modems and that kind of thing have been based on mips for a for a very long time or even vx works but i think that's you know kind of dead now um, and have slowly been surely been moving over to ARM. Um, to see what happens in the next year, 18 months, will be really very interesting. Um, there'll be a bit of a battle for, I, I guess, six months, and then I think that that battle will be decisively over. Um, my money would be on Risk Five. Really? Rather than MIPS, which is established already, and there's so much software
0: available for it, it, it seems to me that Mips would be the the horse to back. Like, if anything, this is bad news for Risk Five. Although it does mean that Risk Five are going to be forced to kind of up their game to compete with Mips.
2: I think Mips is increasingly legacy at this point. People that have worked on it over the years have moved on to other things um, and maybe even retired. Uh, Risk Five is the young upstart. Arm has established itself as the mainstream. Um, you know risk processor so i think the skills from from arm to risk five are transferable sure they're probably a little bit transferable from mips but um i think the people that know that stuff are not going to be interested in moving on so we'll see what happens there will definitely be a war but yeah my money would
1: be on risk five it's still a great thing to have happened i mean this is obviously because risk five is gaining momentum People aren't going to be prepared to change architecture that quickly, and MIPS becoming free kind of opens it up to a whole kind of, maybe maybe it's like IBM buying Red Hat. Well, you've got your new and shiny versus your old and established,
0: and generally speaking, new and shiny tends to win. But I agree with you, Will, that either way, it's going to be an interesting fight, And, and maybe not even fight, you might end up with devices with both
2: in. I think the battle will be fought on the consumer electronics um, network termination equipment, sort of in-home gateways and that kind of thing. That's where it will really, the the real battlefront will be held and um, I'm pretty confident the risk will clear up on that because MIPS is just seen as as legacy.
0: Well, I'm sure we'll see. Right, well we've been rambling on far too long for this episode so we should wrap it up. We'll be back in two weeks then, hopefully with Failim and a full house. Uh, when we'll be doing a bit of news stuff that's happened over the uh, holidays and also doing our predictions and looking back at some predictions that we made before. So that should be exciting. So until then, I've been Joe. I've been Graham, And I've been Will. See you later.